Welcome to the Medical Menemist Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Many students that strive for graduate degrees and high honors are thought of as having type A personalities, being born gifted, or have developed expertise in their areas of study. This is especially true for medical students, but we're all cut from the same cloth and expertise is a state more than a trait. I'm very pleased to announce that today we have one of the foremost experts on expertise, Dr. K. Anders Eriksson, here to tell us how we can develop expertise in our studies. Dr. Eriksson is a Conradi Emirates Scholar and Professor of Psychology at Florida State, and he is well known for his work on deliberate practice, which has been exemplified by his 2016 publication of Peak Secrets for the New Science of Expertise. Dr. Erickson, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really looking forward to talking to you, Chase. We have some great topics here. Is there anything else that you would like to add about who you are, what you do, why you are an expert on experts? Well, you know, I, I think I prefer other people to describe you know, to the degree I'm an expert, I, I would argue that I'm an expert at maybe observing and talking to other experts and trying to learn from them and trying to especially find things that are generalizable across very different areas of expertise. We've been studying musicians. We've also looked at athletes and chess players. And more recently, I've been interacting quite a bit with surgeons, and I'm particularly interested in this question here, if we can identify master surgeons, surgeons who actually have better patient outcomes than their colleagues. That would be a great topic, especially for our audience. Before we get into that, just so the audience is aware, I know you've discussed this multiple times over the past few years and have already been on the podcast outlets for multiple different shows regarding education, neuroscience, etc., I know that it constantly gets brought up that Malcolm Gladwell initially used some of your work to quote his 10,000 hour rule, but that's not exactly what you discovered. Can you go into that a little bit more for the audience? So Malcolm Gladwell read our study that we did. We looked at musicians that differed in their ability to win kind of music competitions. And we're asking the question, is there something different between those who are basically judged by their teachers to have a possibility of success at becoming a professional soloist and touring the world versus musicians that, you know, would be professional musicians, maybe in an orchestra or something like that. And one of the things that we did find was that if you look at the developmental history, we could actually see differences between those who were the most successful and groups that actually met lower standards of performance. And that difference was exhibited here before there were age 18. And, you know, the youngest ones were actually admitted to this music academy. We found that the top group actually had spent more time working by themselves, trying to improve their music skills. And our first study was violinists. And we argued that that was kind of key, that if you're working with a teacher who can now assess what is the best next step for you to work on, then also tell you about training techniques that have been proven effective here for other individuals. And I guess in music, you know, this type of training has been going on for 
you know, three, four centuries. So that was basically our finding that when we asked them to estimate now how much time they had spent prior uh, to basically their current age, we came up with an estimate at age 20. The very best group actually, as an average, had spent 10,000 hours in this type of solitary training, which was reliably more than the other two groups. Mm-hmm. But when Gladwell was reading this, I guess he was drawing more of the inference here. You know, they've spent a lot of time working on things related to their domain and that there was something magical here about 10,000 hours. And I guess that's what we're disagreeing with. We're agreeing with Gladwell's claim that international level performance doesn't just pop up without any preparation. It, in fact, takes a very long time for those who are successful to basically get to the point where they can actually succeed. But this idea here, one, that there's something magical about 10,000 hours, I think is really shown to be incorrect. One, there's a big individual difference that we found in the estimates. But even more importantly, if you want to win a music competition for violinists or pianists, you probably have spent like 25,000 hours basically working on your craft. So this thing here, that 10,000 hours somehow would be a threshold that would allow you to reach kind of an exceptional level is really not supported. Okay. Even more important, this idea is that you can't count hours. And I guess Gladwell mentioned the Beatles and the fact that they've been playing music in these various places in Hamburg for you know pretty much 12 hours a day, that's not the same thing as taking time off, going and now working on trying to improve specific things so you can improve. So just putting in the hours is really very, very different. And we see that in all the professional domains that if people are just keep on working, that seems to be essentially unrelated after the first couple of years, at least, with your performance. So if you want to actually improve, you're going to have to do something different. Okay. So it's going to change per person, per skill set. And I think I could relate a lot to that when I was studying for my first board exam, the USMLE Step 1, I put in a lot of hours, but I wasn't seeing the progress throughout my study period that I was expecting. And that was just a lot of practice, but it wasn't what you're distinguishing from Gladwell is his was just practice, yours is deliberate practice. Exactly where you actually target now something. And that's where having a teacher that would be able to kind of pinpoint now, what is it that you can change? And basically, what are the things that you should be doing to do that change effectively? And I think that is kind of the central idea uh, behind deliberate practice as being different from a lot of other types of practice. Okay. I definitely see how that can differ a lot and students probably don't realize which one they're using without some sort of guidance or without some sort of rules. And I do want to come back to the different steps in deliberate practice that you name in your book. But just before we get to that, I had to ask, since we have a lot of people that come on this show that are either memory experts or train in memory techniques and something that you mentioned in your book, and it was also mentioned in Moonwalking with Einstein that pretty much every guest has mentioned so far, is that you sort of taught Joshua Fower a lot of what he learned in order to win his memory championship. And I'm kind of curious as to how that came about and what your experience was with that and with your memory training research in general. Well, so 
with respect to Josh Forward, I think he attended one of the memory competitions and got interested in this as something. And he's a writer, so he wanted to basically write the story about it. So working on that story, he contacted me and asked if he could come down here and, you know, basically visit with me for a day or so, so we could kind of talk through some of these issues. And during that time, I think we even suggested here that it would be kind of interesting, you know, to get a sense here if he was experiencing now part of the process here of becoming better. So I think we did even some testing of him on the kind of memory tasks that we've used for reference purposes. And then I think when he got home, he had this goal that he was going to put in, you know, whatever time that remained until the next sort of national memory competition. I have to say that my contribution to his actual coaching of what he was doing here in terms of the method of loci and so on, I really didn't get involved. And and I think he had a lot of help uh, from a memory expert that basically was willing not to share his experience. To the extent that I had an influence was more telling him about what we found was possible for these other individuals. And that sort of, I guess, uh, raised a question here. You know, would he be able to now, you know, improve his memory? And by how much? And I guess the interesting thing was, you know, that he ended up actually winning that national memory competition. Yeah, that was quite a feat. And I found that section of his book particularly interesting because it wasn't just anecdotal evidence. It was actual research that you and your laboratory were conducting on memory and on memory improvement and really delving into some of the tactics and training sessions that were working for your test subjects or participants. So I love seeing the research behind these techniques as it seemed to be pretty minimal before. But as a skeptic, I really need to see evidence. I can't just take someone's word for it. So I really enjoyed that section of his book and also mentioned in your book. So it really gives some credence to using these techniques. Yeah, you know, and and since basically uh, Josh's performance, I work with a uh, Chinese researcher and we actually studied somebody who on that memory task, you know, our best subject were doing about 80 to 100 digit lists of random digits. But this Chinese guy, he was able to do a 300 digits. So we actually did a lot of experiments, really asking the question, you know, can we understand how he's doing it? And will we be able to design experiments that would kind of support that our analysis here of what he's doing is valid? So it's not like we just have to take his word for what he describes that he's doing. You know, I mean, that's obviously an interesting first step. Really, what's interesting is that I've yet to find somebody who is really exceptional where once you start analyzing what they're doing, you can't sort of look in under the hood and see here the things that are actually going on. And that makes it obviously a little easier for people who can't do these things to at least see what the difference is, then the question is, you know, do you have the time and the motivation here to acquire those skills so you actually would be able to acquire those mechanisms or not? 
Yeah, that's incredibly motivating to someone just starting out trying the techniques, knowing that no one else is really special. They just put the time in and practice and you can do it too, as long as you have the motivation to do so. Maybe have some delivered practice techniques used and someone to guide you to some degree or purposeful practice, which I guess we'll get into the difference in just a moment, but it should be really inspiring to those that want to use these techniques that are becoming more prevalent in medicine and other forms of higher education that they can do it. Yeah, for sure. And and I think there's something that maybe we should talk about that I know that some people have this wish that thinks it's going to be immediate and stuff like that. And that's something that we documented here in our laboratory studies. You know, these skills don't kind of just suddenly pop up out of nowhere. In fact, you if you design the training correctly, you kind of really see where you're at and also have maybe even a sense here of how far from where you want to go you are and make an estimate here of maybe how long you're going to have to sort of commit to training in order to get there. Yeah, I suppose when you're starting off, especially if you don't necessarily know where your goal is, or you just have a vague indication of where it should be, I want this score, but you're not sure how to get there. It's kind of hard to then schedule accordingly and break it down into more manageable chunks. Yeah, and and I think that's kind of one of the basic ideas that has motivated and, and driven our research is you start out identifying a, a phenomena that can be reproduced repeatedly. And only then is it going to be possible now to address this with the kind of methodology that we've developed, where you would be able to kind of do experiments where you make changes and now see how those changes influence performance as a way here of kind of testing hypotheses about what are the processes that mediate basically this performance. Okay, so how about we try to implement this into a medical study curriculum? Are there any tips that you would give medical students for using this technique? Or should we go into what deliberate practice is first, maybe the steps of that, and then working it into a more rounded schedule? So, so my work in medicine kind of starts out at the end point, which is not kind of the end of a, med- a course in medical school or even the end of medical school, but really the end point would be you being kind of a professional who works, you know, on a regular schedule. So the question then is, how do you actually get to be a proficient medical doctor with, you know, very good patient outcomes? And basically working backwards from that, and I think in my own personal history, I kind of had this wish to become a researcher. So when I was at the university, you know, pretty much most of the things that I was doing I was trying to relate now to things that I've read in biographies that other scientists were doing when they were, you know, basically at my age. So, so I guess for medicine, I would argue that when you're taking a course, it's not preparing for the test unless the teacher has now really adapted the test to really match up with the things that you really would need as an active doctor. And I guess one way of more directly express this would be if we were to take a very exceptional medical expert and have him take the test here, would that person necessarily score maximally? Or is it, you know, really the the target is actually having organized your knowledge in a way that may actually be a little bit different 
from the way it's taught and in particular, the way it's tested. I would love to see research on that. I've heard anecdotally, but I've yet to find any research on this, at least currently, that physicians, if they were to take the step one, the first board exam, they would totally flunk it because the the difference in practice and then what you're actually tested on is quite significant and obviously more so for different specialties. But I'd love to see how that compared education to actual practice. And I think that is, you know, should generate some interesting questions. And I think it partly motivated this emphasis on problem-based learning, where you kind of organize a lot of the knowledge here of anatomy and pathology around kind of diseases. So, so it's sort of like, instead of reading about physiology as its own separate subject, you would introduce it as a way here of helping you reason about medical abnormalities. Mm-hmm. I love PBL training. I'm still trying to figure out how to properly implement that into some of my online coursework that I'm creating, but it's a great theory I've read a lot about, but I'm not entirely sure how to most effectively and maximally implement it yet, which I think is probably a problem for a lot of instructors that try to play around with the idea. I mean, if we could find a way here of helping doctors becoming even more skilled and proficient and ideally also doing it in less time, I think everyone would probably be extremely happy. It's a little bit outside of my area of expertise. So I think I've only been serving here as as somebody presenting the research that I've been doing in other domains as maybe uh, generating thoughts and, and ideas of people who would be in the position here of changing the medical curriculum. I really hope that you make some great strides in that because I agree. I think certain aspects can definitely be learned a lot faster, maybe some sort of competency-based learning, and that would be sufficient for certain topics versus, uh, and then give you more time to focus on other ones that are maybe more clinically relevant and gaining more clinical experiences in the hospital earlier on in your training. I would like to now go into the differences and how to set up a purposeful practice and deliberate practice. And from my understanding, purposeful practice is basically using the same four-step process, but when you don't have an instructor, when you're doing it yourself, you're just putting in the extra purpose, the extra effort. Whereas deliberate practice is when you have some sort of mentor or expert, someone with higher knowledge than you, that can then point out your mistakes and sort of guide you on how to correct them on your next go-around. Is that about right? I I think you capture that completely correctly. And one of the problems, I guess, and why we think the distinction is so important is that there are domains where people do a lot of crazy things that they think is actually going to improve their performance, but there's really no evidence. And once people start collecting that scientific evidence, you can show here that there's really no relation between or there's no effect of you doing something. I remember talking to a student from India who was on the shorter side, and and he basically was told here that by hanging, you know, on holding his body, that he would actually lengthen, and by basically doing that on a daily basis. And as far as I know, uh, there's really no evidence that basically influences your height. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so. So for the steps for deliberate practice, just sort of a summarized version of it. So make sure that your study is purposeful, that you have intense focus on your goals, 
that you receive immediate feedback, and that you push outside of your comfort zone. I know in the book, I believe you use the comparison to homeostasis within the body. If you don't push, for instance, a muscle, you're not going to grow it. So if you don't push your mind, your study habits, you're not going to grow them as well. Could you elaborate on those uh, four steps a little bit? And did I get them right first off? Yeah, no, no, I think you're completely right. I guess what we find is that ideally you should identify now what it is that is part of the performance that you want to attain that you will now focus in on improving. So this idea of just trying to do everything better doesn't seem to be associated with effective improvement. So instead, you identify something that is sort of more specific. And and then in, in a sense here, you would be able to identify now what you would like it to be and where you're currently at. And then the key thing is finding now a training activity that would allow you to get closer to that goal by repetition and by acquiring now sort of new methods for basically producing the performance uh, for that particular aspect. All right. I was wondering when I was reading that section, when we're talking about being purposeful towards your goals and setting these goals, is this similar to the acronym you always see for SMART goals, the specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound, that acronym? I, I think it's completely consistent. I think for us, it's even more important and especially when you're talking about more complex skills, is that idea that you will be able to image what it is that the goal would correspond to. Even though you're really not able to produce it yourself, you will be able to have that internal representation such that when you're actually practicing, you will be able to now assess here your performance and now compare that to your desired performance. And I think We've noticed here, or, or a lot of other researchers have done a lot of work, a lot of music students, when they're actually practicing, they're just playing through the piece again and again, and they don't get any better. They may ins- you know, repeat the same mistakes and everything. So, so obviously, you need to be focused now on what it is that you need to change. And if there's a section that is particularly hard, I think more advanced students They wouldn't play through the whole piece. They would basically now work on that section that they have difficulty with. And the question then is, you know, can you actually, you know, be your own, provide yourself your own feedback by being able to listen to what it sounds like when you're playing? That's another thing that you see that a lot of less successful music students, they can't hear what the music that they're producing sounds like. They're so completely focused on just producing it. And I think that's not unsimilar to people who learn a new medical procedure. They're so focused on just generating it that they are not able to kind of assess and monitor to what degree, you know, they're executing the various steps in in the most appropriate way. That's a good point. I remember hearing another podcast recently, I forget which one it was, and I believe it was regarding surgeons. So I'm not sure if you had directly a part of this or not, but certain surgeons were now seeking out mentors to come into the surgical room and watch them perform the procedures and see where they could improve and what mistakes they were making. Because during the procedure, after you're done with residency, you usually don't have anyone there with you. So whatever you think is correct at that point is now correct to you forever, unless you have someone tell you differently. So this sort of 
peer mentorship in a way for medicine for after residency when you no longer have the legal requirement for a mentor, I think is going to be a vast improvement to medicine in general. You know, I think it was Atul Gawande, uh, who is a famous author uh, on various medical issues. That and checklist manifesto for one. Were recommended that. And, and, and I think in general, other surgeons that I talked to, they would videotape the surgery. And I think especially, you know, if you do minimally invasive surgeries, then, you know, it's very easy here to kind of record the entire surgery. And then you could now go back when you have knowledge here, maybe even of the outcome of any kind of complication that happened later on, you will be able to sort of go back in much the same way that soccer players and basketball players review the game once it's done to be able to address something that they could have or should have done different. And then if it's a matter of skill, then it's not just a matter of saying, okay, you should do this better. Now you have to actually acquire those skills that will allow you now to have a better outcome in a systematic way. Yeah, that self-assessment can be very important and very difficult to get later on. And I'm trying to think of, for a medical student population, some ways of self-assessment and how I visualize it in some of the practices that I had implemented in the past and still use to some degree now is first starting off with some sort of space repetition rehearsal practice, which in medicine is most commonly done with a flashcard deck. And that allows you to assess yourself. Can you recall it without being primed by your notes or by some other image? Can you actually recall the information in a certain order or whatever is required for that. And then for board exams, quite often we'll do question banks for a while, usually through third-party companies, and they'll record what discipline or subject the question was and which ones you're getting wrong. But they're still not reading why you got them wrong. It's not able to really determine your thought process. So that is probably a good place for some sort of tutor or someone else to really make it not purposeful, but deliberate practice. All right, that's the end of part one. We still have a lot of great material coming up, so please do stay tuned for part two next week. Take some time, digest what was said, put these skills into practice, and we will see you next week.